Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Father, we come together today in the, the unity of your faith. Let your life be, be put clearly on display today in our midst. Our desire is that, uh, man, that our imagination would just be captivated with you and your life, that you and your life would be lifted up in our hearts. Lord, you're, you're seated above all things. You're the chief of all things. Everything is under your foot. You're seated above the systems of this world and the death that's in this world, Father. And our desire as we come together today, our desire as we, we fellowship around the truth that is Jesus, is that you and your life not just actually be seated above the death that's in the world, but that in our hearts you be lifted up above the death that's in this world. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Um, you know, the, the thing I'm after for myself, if you're just thinking of what, what do I, I mean, I'm walking with God. And, and what is the thing that I'm after when I'm walking with God? Um, the thing, and that, that same thing that I'm after in walking with God is the same thing that I'm after for everybody else that is connected to this, this fellowship here. And, and what I'm after is, is for myself and for everybody that's connected here to be, to be taught of the Lord to be taught of God. And, and I don't mean told what to do. <laughs> I, I know sometimes our view of what it means to be taught means to be told what to do. But when I talk about being taught of the Lord, I don't talk about being told what to do. But what I'm after for all of us is that we be taught of the faith that came in Jesus. The, the faith that, that created all things. The faith that is the chief of all things. The faith that holds all things together. My heart is for us to be taught of that faith, right? Um, Jesus uh, said to the Pharisees, man, you do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. And what I, what I desire for all of us as we come together is that we would know the spirit in the scriptures, that we would see clearly the spirit in the scriptures, and that we, we would be taught by the spirit of the things that were revealed in Jesus, that we've been taught by the spirit of the faith, because that's how we'll be kept from the error, <laughs> Right? That, that is so prevalent in the, the world that, and that's in the earth. And so that's our heart, that we, man, we just want to be taught of the faith. Um, and that's what it would mean to be, to be taught of the Lord. That faith holds all things together. And that's my desire for myself. That's what I talk with God about when we walk and we talk. That's my desire for everybody else that, that wants to come and walk in fellowship um, with us here. And one of the things I enjoy the most, I got to really do a lot of it while I was off in December. But one of the things I love it, that I love the most and enjoy the most is hearing all the different voices sharing what they see from the foundation of Christ crucified, right? And I'm sorry if this is upsetting to, to some people. I don't really want to hear the voices that aren't sharing from the foundation of Christ crucified. That doesn't mean I don't care what has happened in your life, or I don't care about your story. See, that's a different thing to me. I got all day to hear your story, right? But your story, if it's not interpreted through Christ and Him crucified, is riddled with a bunch of things that aren't true, right? And I want to hear your story, and then I can come and discern your life for you through Christ crucified. But I love listening to people share what they see and share how their lives have been discerned through Christ crucified. That's one of my favorite things in the whole world to do. And the voices can sound different, and they can come from different perspectives. They can come from different uh, 
situations in life. But man, when it comes from the foundation of Christ and, and Him crucified, it's just rich. It's just uh, it's edifying, ex- exhorting. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and it always triggers something in me. right? One of, I, I love when people preach because I get caught up in the Spirit. right? I, I'm not like one of these guys that just sits there like it's an academic class. Right? When people are preaching Christ crucified, the Spirit is moving. And the Spirit is moving you here and there and everywhere. Right? And it's connecting dots and it's showing you things. And I love going with the Spirit while people are talking Christ crucified because He's illuminating things actively in your heart while someone's preaching. If they're preaching the Word made flesh, the Holy Spirit is working, illuminating things in your heart. And I love doing that. And I thought the message my mom preached last week was, was powerful. It, it was a powerful message. And I don't know how many people picked up on this because what she said sounds so like, how could something like that ever happen? But just so there, there, there's, there's no confusion, I, it's easy for me to hear it the right way because I grew up with my mom and I seen all of this, this and I heard all the stories and I seen all the things. But my mom was not talking about a, a fantasy vision when she said they tied her to dead people. She was talking about things that actually happened to her physically and so if if you didn't catch that when you listen to the message go back and listen to the message because the things that she said listen man it's a powerful thing because you'll see what god did to heal us but you'll also see the devices of the serpent and how he tries to harm our lives and the, the only weapon he has is death and how he tries to sting us with death Right? And one of the things that torments the body of Christ, the world, absolutely. But one of the things that keeps the body of Christ being tossed to and fro all the time is I feel like we're 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand and the, the Spirit was poured out of Him onto all flesh. We're 2,000 years removed from that. And I feel like the body of Christ still doesn't know the devices of the serpent. We still don't understand the only weapon He has is death. And then He uses that death. And it, it, it's, it's, ama- it was, it's amazing to me when I listen to my mom tell the story of what these people who were worshiping the devil did to her because everything they did to her was to blaspheme the name of God. And the thing they used to do it was death. That's what they used to try to get her to trust in her own strength, to be exalted in herself as her own God and as of the God of other people. They use death. It's powerful to hear what they did. And it's even more powerful when you hear how God set her free. And it's an amazing thing. So if you didn't catch that the first time through, go back and listen to it. Um, You'll be blessed. Uh, I knew about all of that. And I've heard that before. And and the thing that, listening to her talk, um, it got me thinking on uh, being delivered from evil. The deliverance from evil is, is what it, it got me thinking on and, and the power of God to deliver us from evil. She, she spent a bunch of time talking about Psalm 23. And in, in Psalm 23, the, the psalmist says, um, I will fear no evil for thou art with me, Lord. And, and really what they're talking about there is being delivered from evil. That's what he's getting at. He's talking about God having delivered him from evil. If you look in, in Matthew 6, if you're like, well, where are you, you getting this deliverance from evil? 
thing, because the name of the message is, you deliver us from evil. If you look in Matthew 6, when, when Jesus is teaching the disciples how he prays with the Father, he ends up by saying, and the you in the Greek is assumed. So as you hear me read this and you're thinking, where do I get the you? That's where I get the you from. But when Jesus is teaching them about how he prays with the Father, he ends it off by saying, you lead us not into temptation, but you deliver us from evil. And so Jesus is, is talking to them about what he's caught up with with the Father when he's there, right? When he's hanging out with the Father. And he ends it off by saying, you deliver us from evil. The Father delivers us from evil. So I want to take a look at, man, how exactly does God deliver us from evil? Uh, what does he do? And, and what does that look like? Um, if you read in Luke 21, chapter 25 and 26, um, speaking of the, the coming of the Son of Man, uh, it's, this is Jesus talking, and it says, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then in Matthew 24, 12, speaking of the same distress, it's a parallel um, passage to, to the passage in Luke. It says this, and, and because iniquity will abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The love of many shall wax cold. Now listen, I know many times we people quote these verses and pull these verses out trying to figure out when the end times are, right? They, they, they look at the distress in the earth and then they read these passages and they're, they're trying to pinpoint whether we're in the end times or not. I know there's lots of people that read these passages that also try to pinpoint the end times, but they use them to try to pinpoint that the end times have, have already passed. Listen, what I, what I want to say to you, if you're reading those verses trying to interpret when the end times will happen or if they have happened already, you're missing the point, right? And so we have, we have some people that aren't enjoying the first fruits of the Spirit now, that aren't seeing that, that Christ has conquered death and that death has been abolished. They're not seeing that now and they're, or they're not looking at that now. So they're all the time wanting Jesus to return because they think they can't be filled with the fruit of the Spirit until Jesus comes back. So they're all the time consumed with looking in the Scriptures, trying to find when Jesus will return because they think they have to wait till then to enjoy God. Well, you can enjoy the fullness of God now. Right. And we have a certainty that in the future that the spirit we have now that can produce the fruit of God's life in us. Now we have a certainty that on the last day, that same spirit will glorify our mortal flesh with immortality. We have a certainty of that. And when we see that, that will actually serve us with peace now. And then we have the group of people, God bless them. They're all well intentioned. They look at these guys that are like, well, one day in the sweet by and by that are stuck there. And they say something's wrong with that. And they're right about saying something's wrong with that. But now they think the answer is to come and prove that the end times are already over. And so they want to quote these verses to try to convince people that the last day has already happened. And so listen, whether you're of the, the group that wants to use those verses to try to figure out when it is and when it's going to happen, 
Listen, if you're of that group and you're, you're, you're one side of the coin, but if you're of the other group that's trying to say it already happened because you think that's the power under people walking in the life of God, neither one of those groups is looking at the glorified man Jesus seated at the right hand of God, right? And it's the same side. It's a, the different side of the same coin is what it is. That's not my motivation for, for bringing up those verses. Um, and if that's your motivation when you're reading those verses is trying to teach when the end times was, what I want to say is you're missing the point. That's what I want to say, you're missing the point. But I don't want to despise where, where some people are be, because I'm, I'm not there. So for anyone who's concerned with uh, concerned about the last days and when they are, for anyone who's concerned about that, listen, I want to tell you what you need to know about that, Okay. And hopefully you'll close the book about it. And that doesn't mean you'll never think about the event, but you'll stop laboring to try to understand. I see people laboring to try to pinpoint when the last days are because they think they have to be prepared, right? (laughs) And they think the way to be prepared is to figure out when it will be. (laughs) And so you can read the signs and that's how you'll know and then you'll be prepared, right? That's not how you're going to be prepared, right? You'll be prepared by having the Holy Spirit, (laughs) Right. And let me tell you, the way you're going to have the Holy Spirit is the same way. First, John says where he talks about you believe on the testimony God's given in Jesus, which testimony is that eternal life is found in his son and believing on his son. And when you believe on the testimony that God has given you eternal life free from your works and that eternal life is in Jesus Christ and what God has done in him to overcome death in the flesh. What happens is, is John says that anointing abides in you. That anointing is the Holy Spirit. And the only way to be prepared and the only preparation that is needed, it isn't for your physical eyes and your carnal eyes to need to be able to look up in the sky or look at the calamity in the earth and figure out if this is the right time. And now you're going to run out to the mountainside and you're going to be ready. That's not how you're going to be ready, man. The Holy Spirit's going to catch you up on that day. Right? And so if, if you're worried about when the last days are, when the end times are, listen, let me just tell you, it's been the last days since the Lord Jesus Christ ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of the Father, having received in his body the very glory and immortality of God and having poured out of himself the Spirit of God onto all flesh. It has been the end times in the last days ever since that moment. It was then. And it is now. The last days, the end times, are the days leading up to the day when there's no more sin and death anywhere in creation. It's the end of the age where sin and death got it right to be in creation. That's what it is. It's the end of the age of death. It's the end of the age of sin. It's the end of the day where there's injustice that exists. That's what it is. And so we could say it's the last days of the existence of death in the earth. And so if you want to think about the end times in the last days, the thing your mind is so filled with isn't how are we going to figure out when it is? Or how are we going to figure out if it already was? The thing you're supposed to think about is that death will be removed completely. The whole purpose of John writing the book of Revelation was to encourage the people who were suffering great tribulation and the way he encouraged them was by pointing to the certainty they had that death would be removed from creation. And so when you think of the end times in the last days, if your mind is filled with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, you're missing it. Because I promise you death wasn't removed from the earth. 
And your mind isn't filled with the removal of death. It's filled with the destruction of a physical temple. And if you're busy thinking that you got to figure out when the last days are so you can be prepared, listen, you're missing it. Because the whole point is for your imagination to be filled with that death is on death row. And that death is perishing. It's actively perishing. Just as we could say the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is covering the earth, what we could say is the knowing or the seeing of death is actively perishing in the earth. And that's what you want your mind to be filled with. So it's the end of the time where death can be seen in creation. And so if you still see death in creation, then the end times haven't already finished. And the last day hasn't already happened. Neither has the coming of our Lord Jesus happened. Right? He come the first time to deal with sin. He's coming the second time to set up his government in a physical earth. Right? And so that's what you're supposed to think of when you think of the, the end times. You're supposed to think of the government that's upon his shoulders. You're supposed to think about how he reigns through the power of an indestructible life. You're supposed to think about the certainty you have that that indestructible life is reigning over you and will reign in this earth. Right? Because what will happen then is your mind will be filled with God and the life of God. And your mind, you won't stand in awe of the death or the calamity in this earth. You won't stand in awe of the distress that's in this earth. But rather, you stand in awe of the life of God. Right? Hallelujah for that. Right? We get the whole idea about being prepared so wrong. <laughs> right? People are so consumed with needing to be prepared. Listen, I, I want to say it again. If you want to be prepared, as the scriptures talk about being prepared, because it talks about how it will come as a thief in the night, and people are like, oh my gosh, I don't want to miss it. <laughs> Listen, man, the way you prepare is by believing on the faith that was revealed in Jesus. That's how you prepare, right? And that spirit is one spirit with God and the Lord Jesus, and that spirit knoweth when that day is here. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? That spirit is what will call you forth. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Does that make any sense? I don't want to read those verses without touching on that. There's so many things I want to say about Revelation, and I don't say it because I think people are consumed with Revelation, and I don't think it's the proper perspective that they're consumed with it. And so I don't want to come alongside and aid them in what's an unhealthy obsession, right? I'd rather just keep preaching Christ crucified, because that's actually what Revelation is talking about, right? And so glory to God. But the verses in Luke and Matthew, you notice how they talked about people's hearts failing them through fear. Right? And it says that the reason why their hearts were failing them through fear was because of the distress that they saw in the earth. Right? You know, fear is the currency in the world. The, that's the currency in the world. The, the, the currency of the world and its systems, it's fear. That's what it is. And the reason why that's what it is is because the world stands in awe of death. You know, John talked about they love the darkness. Right? I'll get into later maybe to what that means. But the, the world stands in awe of the death and the, the corruption and the calamity that's in the earth. And because the meditation of their heart is all the time the evil they see in the earth, 
their steps are ordered, their hearts are moved by fear instead of the love of God, right? And that's what the Jesus is getting at in Luke and in Matthew, right? The distress is lifted up in their heart, right? They stand in awe of the distress. The distress is like this all-powerful, almighty, all, uh, it's a God, really, to them. And because they stand in that place, Man, the meditation of their heart is all the time distress and destruction, and they're all the time moved by fear, right? Now, the psalmist would come and say, the psalmist is like a parallel to that, or a a comparing and a contrast. The psalmist says something powerful in, in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley shadowed with death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, Lord. So you have some people whose hearts are failing them for fear over the distress they see everywhere, and then you got this guy over here whose heart is not failing him for fear. He's in the same distress, right? The valley, the shadow by death. Even though I walk in the same distress that those guys are walking in, where their hearts are failing them for fear, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, Lord. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing contrasting of two different things. And it it feeds right into what my mom said about it's not what's happening to you. It's about what you think about what you see happening. And so you could say both these guys are standing in a world surrounded by distress. One of them's heart is failing for fear. And the other one says, I fear no evil. (laughs) Right? And so what's going on? They both living through the same kind of a thing. And I thought my mom, man, my mom did such an amazing job on so many different fronts. She didn't just come and say what was the truth, but she even recognized or, or, or had the, a, a gift of discernment working in her where she could see the potential areas people could misunderstand what she said, and she come and wrapped it up all neatly on the other side. Listen, I'm not saying this. This is what I mean. That was powerful. But as my mom so beautifully pointed out last week, Psalm 23 that says, I fear no evil, that verse isn't saying you must keep yourself from fear. That guy, it's not like the testimony of a guy that's so great he didn't fear. That's not what it is. It's not a testimony about the faithfulness of that guy, right? So many times we can be so amazed that we're in awe of a guy who doesn't fear that we end up thinking how great the guy is. And we completely miss what the verse is even talking about. So that verse is not talking about how you must keep yourself from fear. It's talking about the strength of God to keep you from fear. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the strength of God to keep your heart. It's talking about the strength of God to guard your heart. And even if you look in, in the book of Proverbs where it talks about guard your heart, right, with all diligence. I love what Gary says. Many times when you look at those verbs in the the Old Testament, and in the Hebrew, it's more of a passive action. It's talking about something guarding your heart for you. And if you read in the book of Proverbs, it starts off with the father and the mother telling the son to wear grace around their neck as like an emblem. What do you think is guarding the heart? Them or the grace? Exactly. And so it's God that will guard your heart. And it's God that comes to try to captivate you with his grace or his strength. So that in his strength being lifted up in your eyes or in your sight, your heart will be kept or your heart will be guarded. Right? Now there's something interesting, and this is where I got sidetracked completely with my mom. I got completely off on a tangent in looking at this. The word fear used 
in Psalm 23. Right? I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, Lord. Something very interesting about that word fear that's used in Psalm 23. It doesn't only mean to be afraid or scared of something. And so, yeah, that's the fruit of what the guy's talking about, is that he wasn't afraid or scared. But there, there's something deeper to what they're saying there. And so that word fear, yes, it, it can mean to be afraid or to be scared of something, but it, it's primarily used in the scriptures when talking about God and talking about the truth. It, it's primarily used to mean to stand in awe of something or to have reverence for something where that thing is lifted up in your heart to a place of honor or respect, right? The scriptures talk about God wanting our fear to be before him. Well, he's not talking about wanting us to be afraid or scared. The fear of the Lord is not talking about being afraid or scared of God. What it's talking about is you standing in awe of God or that your heart being filled with reverence and honor and respect towards God on account of you seeing the love in his heart for you and the power and the might of his indestructible life. It's talking about your heart honoring and being lifted up in God and his life. And so the word fear there, it means to stand in awe of something or to have reverence for something where that thing is lifted up in your heart to a place of honor and respect. It's where you're in awe of something's greatness. That's what it means to fear something. You just stand in awe of something's greatness. And that word greatness, it doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's good. It could be that you think it's good, but it's really talking about you're in awe of its strength and its might and its ability. That's what it means to fear something. You're in awe of its strength and its might and its ability. If we look at the fear of death, yeah, death can make you afraid. It says in the garden, and when I say death, guys, I don't just mean like one day you might end up in a coffin or an urn. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say death, I'm talking about whatever form of distress or calamity or destruction or tribulation you could encounter in this earth, right? So yeah, any, any, anything that isn't consistent with having life, as Shelley just said, right? That's death. Anything that isn't consistent with the life that's from above, that's a form of death. And so, yeah, death can make you afraid, as the scripture says about Adam in the garden, right? But in order for death to make you afraid or for tribulation or distress to make you afraid, something has to happen first. Because it didn't make the psalmist afraid. And so in order for death to make you afraid or the fruit of death to make you afraid, it, it must first be lifted up in your eyes before it can make you afraid. It has to first be lifted up in your sight. You have to first revere it. You have to first stand in awe of it. Your heart has to first respect it or honor it, meaning that your heart has to agree that that thing is great, that thing is powerful, that thing is mighty. Because if your heart's not busy thinking that the death and the destruction and the tribulation is mighty, then you won't be afraid. You won't be fear, afraid of the lack that you see. 
right? So the fear of death, I want, you guys know I like to get to the root of thing, things. Because in my own life, I was always picking fruit. Talking about truths from the perspective of the fruit. And I was a good fruit picker. And I, so I was working all these things from the outside instead of seeing the root of what it was talking about. It's the same thing with the fear of death. If you don't understand the root of it, if you don't see how God took an axe to the root of the fear of death, you'll all the time be trying not to be afraid. And you'll all the time condemn yourself for not being afraid or for being afraid. And you'll all the time be working about how can you not be in fear. And you'll miss the point of what the fear of death is actually talking about at its root. The fear of death at its root is simply to stand in awe of death. To stand in awe of distress. To stand in awe of calamity and tribulation. It's for death to be lifted up in your sight to the place where you revere it as being great. We see that example with Goliath as the giant. Did you see how the children of Israel stood in awe of Goliath? Oh my gosh, look at the strength, look at the power, look at the might of Goliath. And because Goliath was first lifted up in their heart, because they first esteemed the power and the might of Goliath, that made them afraid. But David comes along and he's not esteeming Goliath. He's not revering the strength that is in Goliath. He's not standing in awe of the giant. Why? See, he's standing in awe of something else. Something else is lifted up in his heart. That giant was not lifted up in his heart. Something else was lifted up there. And so the fear of death at its root is for death to be lifted up in your sight to the place where you revere it as being great. Not good. When I say great, I don't mean that you revere it to be good, but you're standing in awe of its power and its might. You're looking at it and you think it's a bad mamma jamma. Right? This is the baddest dude in the neighborhood. We got to steer clear of this dude. Because if this dude is around, listen, man, he's going to steal from us. He's going to kill us. He's going to destroy us. See, that's how the world looks at death. And really, death becomes their God. Right? Because they revere death as the baddest mamma jamma that ever was. They look at death and they think death is the, the, the strongest, most powerful, most mighty thing. That it can steal from them, that it can kill them, and it can destroy them. And their hearts are lifted up with that death. And essentially what it means is you're loving darkness. And what it means to love darkness isn't like a nefarious thing. What it means is that you think that that darkness is God. There's nothing greater than the darkness. And so now you're taking your cues from that darkness. And now your heart is moved by the, the death that you think is God. You think death is seated in the holiest place. And so Hebrews could, could just as easily say, Hebrews 2, it could just as easily say we were all our days in bondage because we stood in awe of the death that's in the world. We were all our days in bondage because we stood in awe of the death that's in the world. We were all our days in bondage because the death and the corruption in the earth was great in our sight. Hebrews 2, 
See how we're getting to the root of the, the affliction? You see, when you see the root of the affliction, you begin to easily see what the medication is or what heals, right? If you don't have the proper diagnosis, you ain't getting to the proper treatment. We've all experienced that with doctors, right? God bless them. I'm not trying to speak against doctors. Doctors aren't God. And so when they get things wrong, it's not because uh, they're bad people or they're bad doctors. They're just not God, right? And what's, what's, well, I feel bad for doctors because the world's idea comes along and kinds of make doctors feel like they are God. And so they dwell in that place. But we've all experienced with doctors, they do the best they can. But listen, man, they're not God, and so sometimes they don't know. They didn't make your body. <laughs> and so they're doing their best to try and study it and figure it out, but they are not the creator. And so, man, when they try to heal you from an affliction or an ailment, if they come with the wrong diagnosis, guess what they give you? The wrong prescription. And just to let doctors off the hook, I'm, I'm the kind, I don't really go, I don't go to doctors. It's not because I don't like doctors. I'm just like one of these people that I don't think I have time to go to the doctor. And so, you know how many times I've wrongly diagnosed myself? <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, we could probably all relate to all of us having some ailment or affliction, and we're busy trying to figure out what the problem is. And then we order this uh, supplement or this medication, or we start taking this thing because we, we read that it will heal our affliction right? But listen, if our diagnosis was wrong to begin with, whatever thing we're trying to implement to heal that thing, it ain't going to work. There's an interesting dynamic that happens when you begin to understand what the real problem was. Your heart begins to eliminate every solution that can't deal with that problem. And it begins gravitating towards the only solution that can heal the problem, right? When I, listen, it was only like six months ago that we thought I was dying. And we had all these symptoms. And we all diagnosing them like crazy. And we getting all this confirmation, oh, you're dying. Here's why you're dying. And so, no, no, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to keel over in, you know, six months. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we're pinpointing all these problems. And now I'm implementing this and I'm implementing that and I'm doing this, right? Because I'm not going to go to the doctor. I already told my wife, listen, I'm so sorry. You can pray for me. God's the only one that can change my mind. I ain't getting no stents in my heart, right? That doesn't mean you shouldn't get stints in your heart. I'm a stiff-necked person. I'm stiff-necked, right? And so we're implementing all these things. Well, none of the things worked. I quit eating sugar. Sugar's the problem. Maybe I have diabetes. Maybe that's it. So I quit eating the sugar. That didn't fix the problem, right? Well, maybe, you know, the, all the diagnostic tests say that I have uh, artery disease. Or are we going to switch the diet, all of it? And so I stopped eating like meat and stuff. I mean, I, st I, mean, I stopped eating carbohydrates. I stopped eating everything, right? Because th that, that's the solution. And so I just did. Because I'll at least do that for my wife, right? I won't keep on the same way. I know, if there's a problem, glory to God, I'll give up all that stuff. And I did, but it didn't fix the problem, right? Well, then I started drinking these emergency packets, the, immuno, the immune plus emergency. And our dear brother, Matt, he saw me almost look like I was going to die at the conference. Like almost killed over, I turned white as a ghost. Well, this, this dude, when we were at breakfast, said he thought he heard God tell, tell him to give me some vitamins. And he thought he was insane. I could tell this grown man next to me, here, take my vitamins. Well, anyway, Matt was hearing from the war. That was a word of knowledge, you see? That's a real word of knowledge. He wasn't trying to tell me about my ministry or some gifting I had from God or a house I was going to get. I mean, he could see into my life and see what God saw. Well, I started taking the emergency the immune plus, and all the symptoms went away. 
all the heart palpitations and all the, the thing where the blood seemed like it wasn't going in my head and I'm just about to keel over and all the, the leg cramps and muscle cramps that are consistent with artery disease and everything else. I drank that emergency. One day it all went away. You think anybody had to tell me to, eat, to take the emergency after that? I just gravitated towards it. You know, I got that emergency on an automatic subscription through Amazon. It sends me two boxes every month. I take that stuff every day. Because when I could see what the real problem was, which was a nutrient deficiency, a mineral deficiency, it pointed me to the correct solution. And then my heart gravitated toward it like no problem at all. Right? That's what happens. It's the same thing spiritually. When we could see the root of the problem, instead of looking at the fruit of it and trying to deal with the fruit, what happens is it becomes real clear to our hearts what will solve the problem. And then we'll just start subconsciously connecting to the answer, right? And that's how it is with the gospel. So this is, this is what the psalmist says. I'm going to implement this meaning of the word fear, which is awe. So we can see what the, the psalmist is saying. Because if we don't see what he's saying, oh, we're busy thinking of this guy wasn't afraid. We shouldn't be afraid. And then we start living like it's a sin if we feel afraid sometimes. And we're completely missing what we should be connecting with. Instead of connecting with the thing that can keep us from fear or that can heal us from fear, we're busy connecting with, I shouldn't be afraid. What's wrong with me that I'm afraid? But here's what the psalmist says, connected with that meaning. Even though I'm living in a world that's surrounded with death and corruption and distress, my heart does not esteem the death. The death and the corruption and the tribulation I see isn't lifted up in my sight as if it's full of power to be able to steal from me and destroy me. That's what he's saying. He sees the distress, but the distress isn't God. He's not in awe of the distress. Like it's all powerful, like it's almighty, like it can steal from him and kill him and destroy him, like it can separate him from what's good. He doesn't see it that way. It's not lifted up in his heart that way. He's not worshiping darkness. He's not loving the darkness. He's actually seeing the light. And it's the light that's lifted up in his heart. He sees the light is greater than the darkness. So he sees the darkness, but the darkness is not seated in his heart as God. Rather, the light is seated in his heart as God. And he's in awe of the light. Well, when you're in awe of the light, even should you be in the middle of darkness, what happens is, is the darkness looks like nothing. If you want to put New Testament language to it, the psalmist could easily come and say, the strong man has been bound in my heart. <laughs> he could easily come and say, the prince of this world has death in his hand and he's, come to, he's coming to me, but he's got nothing in me. Isn't that what Jesus said? Didn't Jesus say he come to bind the strong man? Didn't Jesus also say the prince of this world is coming to me, but he has nothing in me? Listen, guys, Psalm 23 is written by David. And David is talking about very real things he went through as a human. And so we're not going to eliminate that. But Psalm 23, David was filled with the spirit of the son. It says he was a man after God's own heart. Jesus is the man that was in the bosom of the father, the scripture says. And so David was giving utterance to the spirit of the son, even in his life. So that's Jesus saying there. 
It's the same thing Jesus says. The prince of this world is coming to me. And I'll be in the midst of the valley that's shadowed by death. And I'll be hanging on that tree. And all the fullness of death will be coming against me. He'll give me the best shot of the death he has in his hand. But that death won't be lifted up in my heart. And so he won't have anything in me. The devil can't have anything in you unless the death is first lifted up in your heart. Unless you first stand in awe of the distress and the calamity and the corruption you see. He doesn't have anything in you. Well, the psalmist goes on to tell us. He tells us the how and the why. He tells us the how and the why when he says, For you are with me, Lord. He, he says why he doesn't stand in awe of the distress and the death and the darkness. For you are with me, Lord. The psalmist saw God. And so they were standing in awe of God. It was God who was lifted up in their sight. Their fear was before God, not before death. They stood in awe of God in the life that God has in himself. They didn't stand in awe of the death that was in their face. That kept their heart from being afraid. And it filled them with the boldness. They saw something about God. They saw something about what was in God that lifted God up to the place in their heart where he was seated above the death they saw. They saw that death was the footstool of God. Right? So they saw something in God that caused their hearts to esteem God above the death they were surrounded by. Right? They weren't in awe of death. They were in awe of God. That's what kept them from fear. You, you can't call God God unless he's also the one that keeps you from fear. If he's your God, that means that he's the one who keeps you from fear. Well, how's he going to get that right? I'm glad that you didn't ask. No, I'm glad that you asked. You guys forgive me, man, this towel. I can't seem to get it right where it stays there. Hallelujah. It's because I'm moving around all the time. Is that, you guys, is this making sense so far? You guys following this? Okay. Exodus 20.20. I think it's 20.20. Exodus 20, I think. Moses there, talking about the, the tablets of testimony. That is the law that was written by the finger of God and, and given to Moses through the angels because the scripture says Moses couldn't see God's face and live. Right? And it wasn't because God would have killed Moses. It's that because God is light and life in whom there is no darkness. And what happens when you stand in the presence of light, it makes everything bare. Well, Moses hadn't been sealed with the Holy Spirit yet. And so God's trying to explain to Moses, listen, bro, if you see me, to see someone's face is to see all of them. He's like, listen, bro, you see all of me right now when you haven't been divorced from the death and the spirit isn't sealed in you, you're going to die. Right? And so th that's why the law was given through the angels, because Moses couldn't see the face of God and live. Again, not because God would kill him, but because he had a sin attached to him that would kill him. Iniquity, not bad behavior, the, the belief that entered the world by one man, Adam. And that should give everybody a great picture of how people can perish in the end. Because we think the fact that people perish in the end means God killed them. It doesn't mean God killed them. It means you can't see the face of God and live unless you see yourself in his face. 
unless you look at him and you see you're the same as him. Well, you ain't going to look at him and see you the same as him unless you have the spirit of his life in you and you see it wrapped around you. Right? And so Moses, speaking of the tablets of testimony, listen to what he says. Fear not. Now in that place, that does mean afraid. So don't be afraid. God has come to prove you that your fear, now that's the word. That word doesn't mean to be afraid the second time. It means to stand in awe or to revere something. So don't be afraid. God has come to prove you that your fear might be before him. And you do not sin, which means to miss the mark of his eternal life, his glory. That's what Paul come and said in Romans when he said, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul come and define what sin is. It's to not partake with God in his life. It's to not have the glory of God dwelling in you. That's sin. It's a sin to be dying. It's a sin to not have a life that can't die because God created you to live and not die. So in the day that you're dying, man, you've missed the mark. <laughs> Again, when you deal with the root of that, you don't get confused with bad behavior. The church is so caught up with everybody trying to clean up their behavior. If that was sin. But if we all understood that sin was to not, was to miss the mark of God's immortality, all of us would easily know, well, we can't produce immortality. Who, who can? God, the only immortal. You know, in the process of seeing all that right, do you know what would end up happening? The outside of the cup would be clean. Because the inside of the cup would first be made clean. But you have a church in the world that's obsessed with cleaning the outside of the cup. In the church that's in the world doing that is nothing but whitewashed sepulchres. Dead men walking. It's amazing. I listen to these preachers and everything they say is condemning people for their bad behavior. Their immoral acts. And then I go and read the scriptures and I look at the life of Jesus. And I try to find all the different times that Jesus did that. You don't. Do you know who you find Jesus condemning? The God's like them. And he doesn't condemn them in the sense of judge them because he says he judges no one. But he comes and condemns the tree they're busy with. And I'm thinking, when's the last time one of these guys preached a message rebuking religious leaders? Oh, that's right, never. Because they are the religious leaders. So God says to the people through Moses, you guys have to forgive me. I, one of the things that bothers me the most is when people blaspheme the name of God. When they blaspheme the name of God to unbelievers. Right? It's one thing if you want to come in the church and you find a guy in the church professing God that thinks it's good to sleep with his father's wife. And you come and prove to that guy that that is not the fruit of God's life. It's another thing when you're all the time out there judging unbelievers according to the flesh and blaspheming the name of God in their heart because God's the only one that can clean the inside of the cup and he's the only one that can make clean the outside of the cup. And maybe if you were more concerned about the torment in their heart than their proper behavior, you might be able to preach a message that could actually make clean the inside of the cup. And that's what I desire for the church. So God says to the people through Moses, don't be afraid, man. And I'm using my own language. You guys notice how I like to say man all the time. I don't know what's wrong. Do not be afraid. 
I have given you this law that prophesies of my lamb. I have given you this law that prophesies of the lamb I will provide and how my lamb will take away the death that's in the world. And the reason that I've given you this law is so the death that's in the world would no longer be lifted up in your hearts but that me and my life would be lifted up in my hearts. I have given you this law that prophesied of my lamb that would remove the death that you're so worried about that's lifted up in your heart so that death would no longer be lifted up in your heart, but that you would rather stand in awe of me and the life I have in myself. Imagine if we actually taught what the scripture said. You know, you know what you would find? You just see the other night I had this dream, and I don't dream dreams often. But it was just like an axe, kunk. And I could hear the, the wood chipping. It was like a reverberation. And there was nobody swinging. I couldn't see anybody swinging the axe. And it wasn't that I didn't think someone was swinging it, but I couldn't make out who it was. But I just heard an axe, chunk, chunk, chunk. And if we actually preach the scriptures, man, what we would find is that it would be a spiritual axe that was being taken to the root of what is bringing forth the fruit of death in people's lives. That's, that's what we would find. If you read the scriptures, you know, the Hebrew people, when they, came, when they had their exodus out of Egypt, they were in the same place as those guys that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. They were all the time, their hearts failed them. The Hebrew people, when they came from their exodus out of Egypt, those Hebrew guys, their hearts failed them all the time for the distress that they saw everywhere. Just like Jesus says in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. The hearts of the Hebrews were all the time failing them. And it was filled with, their hearts were filled with iniquity, as it says. The love of many shall wax cold because their hearts are filled with iniquity. Their hearts were filled with iniquity. Their hearts failed them in their exodus out of Egypt. Do you know why? Because the distress they saw all around them was lifted up in their heart. God saw they stood in awe of death. And you know what he did? He gave them the tablets of testimony that prophesied of the lamb he would provide to remove the death. You know why? so that the lamb would be exalted or lifted up in their heart to a place that was seated above the death. That when they walked in the world, they would stand in awe of the lamb instead of standing in awe of the sin and the death. That their fear might be before me and not the distress they see. That their reverence, that they would revere me, that their heart would honor and respect me. Not, not like piety like we think of, like, oh God, don't please smite me. I remember being a little boy walking in the church as an altar boy. They teach you all these things and you're sure God's going to smite you dead one day. And you just are, right? So you're like trying to be holy, you know what I'm saying? Not knowing what holiness is. Well, your willpower has no strength in it. And so it will eventually fail you. And I remember one day, man, it failed us in the middle of service. And the, the, the poor brother, the poor altar boy that was doing the, the bells when he was doing the, the Eucharist and stuff, my man, like, messed the sound all up and, like, dropped the bells. And it was like this, it was like clanging cymbals. Well, in our great piety, we should have been solemn. We all start freaking laughing. <laughs> The altar voice. That's when I learned God ain't striking me dead. Because I said, certainly, if God's going to strike me dead, 
This is when it would have happened. It would have been now, right? And so immediately that thing got cleared up. Started me on this process with God where maybe I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong vein walking with God. You know, maybe I've got the wrong idea about God. Um, so God saw what their fear was in, that they stood in awe of death. And he said, I got to do something to where they stand in awe of me, where their hearts honor and respect me, meaning they see me and the life I have in myself as being greater than the death. Where they actually see death being disrespected in their presence, right? Like that, nothing. Like David come upon Goliath and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You think David had any respect for Goliath? You think his heart revered what he saw in Goliath? Why not? You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? We look so much at what they did instead of the how and the why that it happened to them. The same thing will happen in you, I promise. All you need to do is have your eyes fixed on the thing their eyes was fixed on. And everything in the world is trying to keep your eyes from being fixed on that. Everything in the world is trying to keep you from standing in awe of God and the life that he has in himself. And it's trying to get you to stand in awe of the death and the distress you see. But you have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus. And he has given that he have life in himself also. Just as the Father hath life in himself. You know, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he said. Jesus is, yes, Jesus is the son of man, but Jesus is the very manifestation of the life of God. That's why he's called the incorruptible seed. That's our advocate. As we walk in a world that's filled with distress, that's all the time trying to lift itself up in our hearts as if it's a bad mamma jamma, we have an advocate with the Father. We see the very life that's in the Father, in this man, Jesus Christ, and we saw how that life that was in this man, Jesus Christ, did not respect the death that was in the world, but disrespected it over and over to the degree that he left it where it was no more. He consumed it to the uttermost. And that advocates in our heart because what happens is, is it lifts what we see in God to a place in our hearts that's seated above the distress we're encountering. And then we're no longer afraid. We're no longer filled with anxiety because we're not standing in awe of the distress or the lack that we see, but we're standing in awe of the God who can even heal dead flesh. What? You want to be amazed about something? I remember when I was a little kid, they, they took me to these Christian things where they brought out the big strong guys and they blew up the bottles, the plastic bottles that blew up. And they ripped in half the little phone books. And you're like, wow. Seriously, what? That's, that's what it means to be fear. I was in awe of that. I remember Michael Jordan first took off from the free throw line and was like, whoa. You were in awe. Allen Iverson talked about when he came into the league. Allen Iverson's a Hall of Famer, a Hall of Fame basketball player. He's the 50 greatest players in the earth that ever played. You know what that guy said when he became a rookie in the league? He called Michael Jordan black Jesus. <laughs> and he was afraid to be on the court with him. You know why he was afraid? He stood in awe of what he saw this guy could do. So in the very same way, guys, 
Just like God saw with the Hebrews when he gave the tablets of testimony. He didn't just see that about the Hebrews. He saw that about mankind. So in the very same way, before God sent Jesus, the reason why he sent Jesus was because he saw the world was standing in awe of death. He saw the world was standing in awe of the destruction and the calamity and the, the tribulation that it saw. He saw the death was lifted up in our sight. He saw that we were basically worshiping death. We were worshipers of death, meaning that all our steps were ordered by death, that every imagination of our heart was filled with the corruption and the distress we saw in the world. He saw that we loved the darkness. What that means is he saw we were captivated by the darkness in the earth. We bowed down to it, right? That's what he saw. And just as he says, just as the Spirit says in the letter to the Hebrews, when God saw us in that place, he wanted to cleanse our conscience. He wanted to provide a lamb that could purge our conscience from the death and distress in the world. Because he saw it was lifted up in our hearts. How can I cleanse their conscience from that death? How can I cleanse their conscience from the distress? Again, we say he purged our conscience from sin, and we never understand that the wages of sin is death. And we never understand, we never connect it, because by the time it talks about that in Hebrews like 9 and 10, we completely forget chapter 2 that says we were all our days in bondage through the fear of death. And we completely missed that we were all our days in bondage because we stood in awe of death. Death stained our conscience. That's how it was taking us captive and putting us in bondage. And so we get to the part where God purges our conscience from sin, and we're still trying to read in some definition about how God purged our conscience from bad behavior. And we try to get it right where we say, well, no, 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 we're not going to judge ourselves for our bad behavior anymore. And it's true you shouldn't judge yourself for your bad behavior. In the day you find something in your life that isn't born from God, listen, man, there's no shame for you, but come into the presence of a God that can raise your life up out of the dead. And we completely miss the root of what would heal us. And even to the place where you say, well, he purged my conscience from sin. He purged my conscience from the wisdom that said I could be exalted by my own ability. There's a truth to that. He does purge your conscience from thinking you can exalt yourself unto life. But he first purges your conscience from that by purging your conscience from thinking that you need to be exalted above death. Because he come and provided a lamb that would exalt you above death. And now your conscience is no longer stained with death but it's stained with an incorruptible life. That's why Hebrews talks about he reigns through the power of an indestructible life. That's the whole point. How does your conscience get cleansed from sin? The wages of sin is death. And your conscience becomes cleansed from sin when you see that Jesus reigns through the power of an indestructible life. That means death has nothing in that life. And when you see that death has been disrespected, when you see that death is not strong and mighty and it can't steal and kill from you because you think, can it steal and kill from God and the life that's in God? No, we saw that thing go down in the death and the resurrection. What happens is, is your conscience is cleansed from death. And what's happened is, simultaneously, your conscience is cleansed from laboring and toiling to try to clothe yourself with life. You're no longer looking at what you can gain to gather life to yourself because you see the only life there is. You stand in awe of that. Oh, that's life. Some of us are standing in awe of things in this world as if that's where life is. It isn't. 
And God come to cleanse you from thinking the life you need is there by showing you this. Oh, that's a lie. Jesus is the word about what life is. He's the word made flesh about everything. We all desire life. We all got different ideas about what life is and where life is found. Behold Jesus, the word about what life is and where the life we want is found. And when we see that, oh, we stand in, oh, that's life. We begin to honor and respect and have reverence. To, oh, this is life. Right? And then you ain't got to tell people to stop doing other things. You just put God's life on display in their midst. And you show them what that life does in the presence of the darkness and the death that has tormented them. Oh, hallelujah. So God saw the whole world in that place. And you know, what he did was, he put the death that was lifted up in our sight. He saw it was lifted up in our sight. He put that death that was lifted up in our sight that we thought was a bad mamma gemma. And he put it next to his life in the body of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because Jesus is the life of God. And so God come and conducted an experiment in our midst. He tried to tell the Hebrews. He kept trying to tell them, no, no, you don't understand. Look, I'll give you bread from heaven. You hungry? You stressed out? You're going to die because you don't have food? Here! You thirsty? You stressed out because you think you're going to perish because you don't have water? Here's water out of the rock. You stressed out because you can't see? I'll be a pillar of fire by night. You stressed out because you don't know where you're going? I'll be a cloud with you by day. You stressed out because you're wondering about where you're going to live? How you're going to have a house? I'll give you a land where there's houses that you haven't built. Where there's vines that you haven't planted. He was trying to be exalted in their sight. He knew the power for them to be put to rest wasn't in him telling them to rest. It was in him being revered in their eyes or in him being lifted up in their sight. If they could stand in awe of the life he had in himself, that that would disrespect the distress they saw. And fear, they will not fear. Oh, man. So God comes and he, he conducts an experiment in our midst using the flesh of Jesus. Because Jesus is God's life. Well, death is bad, ain't it? It's a bad dude. Well, here's Jesus. Here's God's life. The scripture says a body was prepared for Jesus. A body I have prepared for you. For what reason? To demonstrate the life that God has in himself is greater than the death that was lifted up in our hearts. So that we would no longer stand in awe of the death, but we'd be awestruck by the life that overcomes death in the flesh. And our steps would no longer be ordered by the darkness of the death we saw, but it'd be ordered by the power of an indestructible life where the thing that moved in our hearts was the love of God, not the fear that's in the world because of distress. This is what the church should be preaching about every day because we don't get it. And that's actually the root that will produce the fruit that we all spend every day talking about that we all want. A body God prepared for Jesus to put the death in the world and the life he has in himself on display. These guys are humans. They see death, what death does in their body. That's why they think death's a bad mamma jamma. So a body we must prepare. 
that we don't just put on display that death that they're so scared of, but that we can put on display the life that will disrespect the death in their hearts. (laughs) Oh, man. So Jesus took the full weight of death into himself on the cross so it could be decided what is greater. What is greater, guys? I know you're standing in awe of death. And so he takes the full weight of himself, of death, into himself on the cross. What's greater? The death in the world or God's life? (laughs) God disrespected the death that we were so afraid of in the body of Jesus' resurrection. He did it so the distress in the earth could be disesteemed in our hearts. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says this light affliction is nothing in comparison to the glory of God. He wasn't telling you this is what you should be doing, and so now get it right. He was talking about how God disrespected death in his midst and how in light of the glory of God, man, he's no longer standing in awe of all the calamity that could happen to him, but he stands in awe of the God that can even heal the flesh from death. That's what he's talking about. Jesus says the same thing as the Son of Man. It quotes Jesus as in, in Hebrews. He's talking about Jesus as the Son of Man there. And it says that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. What it means is his heart disesteemed the death of the cross. It means the death at the cross wasn't lifted up in his sight. He didn't stand in awe of the death that came upon him. He didn't look at that death as if it was a bad name of Jamma, as if it could steal from him and kill him and destroy him. He didn't look at that. He saw the glory that he shared with the Father from the beginning. In fact, he said, I am that glory poured out into this earth. He's given me authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it back up and I'm going to stand back up out of this grave and show the disrespect we have for death in the earth and how our life pushes death down so that our people's hearts will disesteem the death and will be lifted up in their sight and our life will be lifted up in their sight. And they'll live their days with the meditation of their heart all the time being on a life that overcomes death. And we fear no evil. Does this make any sense? How long have I been going? I should stop now. You think I should should stop now? It's five till. We'll finish with, we'll do this last thing. We'll finish with Abraham. We talk about Abraham the wrong way. All this was demonstrating Abraham, everything I just said. If you look at the life of Abraham, it testifies of the same thing. We talk so much about Abraham, what Abraham did, as if the account of Abraham is about his faithfulness. And you might say, wait a minute, Greg, wait a minute. You must not know the scripture. And you doth greatly err not knowing the scripture. Clearly the scripture talks about being blessed with faithful Abraham. Yes, yes, it does. And the word faithful there doesn't speak of Abraham's faithfulness towards God. It speaks of Abraham's heart esteeming God's faithfulness towards him when you look at it in the Greek. It means to stand in awe of someone else's goodness towards you. 
And so when it talks about faithful Abraham, what it's talking about is Abraham stood in awe of the God that can make dead flesh live. Abraham stood in awe of a God that can raise the dead, of a God that would provide a lamb that would cause death to pass over him and pass over the promised seed, which was the man Jesus Christ. And he saw that that would be the power unto him inheriting the real promised land, the heavenly country, with the foundation that's permanent. He stood in awe of that God. That's what faithful Abraham means. Listen, guys, I use Abe a lot, and it ain't because I'm a one-trick pony. I can say a lot of things about a lot of things. I really can. Some of it is just cool. Like, oh, that's cool. And it's nice as like icing or like a cherry or like some sprinkles on your ice cream. Right? That's like the, that's like the you know, part of a Sunday. It's not that it's worthless, but it's not the, the power of God. You see, and the reason why I talk about Abraham all the time is because Abraham's the father of faith, it says. And if you get Abraham's life wrong, you're getting your own life wrong. If you don't see the work of Abraham, if you don't see what it means for Abraham to be justified, if you don't understand how he was justified or what had to happen for him to be justified, you get the whole thing wrong, and then simultaneously you're getting it wrong for yourself. Simultaneously. So looking at Abe, there was a time in Abraham's life when his fear, his reverence, was in the weakness he saw in himself. There was a time where the deadness he saw in his body was lifted up in his sight as if it could keep him from life. There was a time where he was living that way. He was standing in awe of the deadness he saw in himself and the deadness he saw in Sarah. That's why he said to God, what shall you give me seeing I have no heir? So God come and tell Abraham he's going to give him everything. The deadness Abraham saw was lifted up in his sight. That deadness is the baddest mamma jamma ever. God, don't you see it? You ain't saying to God, how are you going to give me anything if God's the one that you're standing in awe of? You ain't going to say to God, how are you going to give me anything in light of this deadness if it's God's life that's in, that you stand in awe of? But Abe did it innocently. How's he supposed to know? He comes from a land of idolatry. At least he left when God said, it'll get you up out of your country, bro. I'm about to teach you something. At least Abraham, listen, you want to know about uh, the obedience of Abraham? Abraham allowed himself to be persuaded by God. He was obedient to the faith. He allowed himself to be persuaded by the faith God presented to him. That's what you could say about it. And so you could say Abraham's steps were ordered by the deadness he saw. He did go lay with Hagar, didn't he? Why did he go lay with Hagar? Because the deadness he saw in Sarah was lifted up in his heart. Well, God desired for Abraham's fear to be before him. He wanted his life to be lifted up in Abe's heart. So if you keep reading in the account of Abraham in the scriptures, which is a beautiful, powerful account, I promise you, if you think you've read it, you haven't, if you think you don't need to read it again, then you don't know. And it's okay if you don't know, because God's the only one who knows. But you could read the account. I've read the account of Abraham. I don't, even, I don't even know how many times. And I still see stuff today that I didn't see even last month. But God wanted his life to be lifted up in Abraham's heart. So he comes to Abraham in Genesis 17. And what does he say to Abraham in Genesis 17? 
I am the almighty God. Why do you think he adds in the almighty? Why do you think he adds in El Shaddai? What's he trying to say to Abe? We completely lose sight of it. Abe, the deadness Abe saw in himself and in Sarah was lifted up in his heart. He stood in awe of the deadness. How can you give me anything? Look at this deadness. And God come to Abe and started ministering to Abe and revealing to Abe about how he had a life in himself that even overcomes the death of the flesh. That's why Jesus come and said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And so God begins minister. I am the almighty God. I'm greater than the death you see. I'm greater than the deadness. I can even take the flesh that's full of deadness and pull that death out and make a flesh that can never be touched by deadness again. What? Behold, the day comes where I shall do a work in their midst which they shall in no way believe. Do you know why they don't believe it? Because they think death is God. Death is the Almighty. <laughs> oh. So when God revealed himself to Abe as the Almighty God, what he was revealing himself to Abe, he was revealing to Abe that he's the one who possesses the power to raise the dead and to heal the flesh from death. He came to Abe and he revealed that he possesses in himself a life that overcomes death in the flesh. The reason he did that was so Abe would stand in awe of God in his life instead of the deadness he saw. That's how he would become justified or the father of many nations. The father of both Jews and Gentiles who would later believe on the lamb God would provide to remove death and who would later believe on the God who raises the dead. That's why Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham didn't consider the deadness in Sarah's womb or the deadness in his body, but he gave glory to God. What Paul is saying there is that Abraham did not stand in awe of the deadness he saw. He stood in awe of the God who's so glorious that he makes dead bones live. And he doesn't just give them a second chance. He makes dead bones live evermore to where they can never die. <laughs> oh. Really what Paul's saying is Abe's fear was not before the deadness he saw in his body or in Sarah's womb. His fear was before God. That's really what Paul's saying. The gospel is all about removing your fear from being before the death and the distress you see in the earth and putting your fear before the God who raises the dead. That's what it's all about. Because that's at the root of all that ails. And if that root can be whacked and plucked out and people begin standing in awe of the life of God, it becomes a ministry to them where they begin receiving nutrients from life instead of receiving nutrients from death. And their hearts are no longer moved by fear. And their hearts no longer fail them. But their hearts are moved by a life that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And their steps are ordered by the love of God instead of the fear that's in the world because of death. Glory to God. That's the whole thing. We'll just pray. Thank you, Father, for healing our sight. Thank you that you didn't despise us when we were in awe of death, but you understood 
how that could happen to us. Thank you, Father, that you love us so much that even when we were loving the darkness, you drew near to us so that the life you have in yourself could be manifest in the midst of the darkness. That when we saw your light dispelling the darkness, that that would bring something forth in us where we stood in awe of you and that we worshiped you, not by thinking of what we could do for you, but by seeing the life you had in yourself and what it would do for us. Thank you, Father, that you, you ever liveth. Thank you that you're ever with us. Thank you that you're always interceding in our hearts, manifesting your life, revealing your life, lifting your life up in our hearts as we encounter the distress in this world. Thank you that you keep our hearts from the fear by the, the power of your Christ and the, his incorruptible life. Thank you, Father. Amen. Glory to God. I love you guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks for braving the cold. Thank you guys watching online. We love all you guys. Hallelujah.